This episode of Mountain Comics is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all up to 45% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Two of the books that you can find on InStockTrades.com right now, of course, related to our subject, Supergirl. First one is Supergirl Being Super, the trade paperback by Mariko Tamaki and Joelle Jones. It's 208 pages. This is the hit miniseries in the DC graphic novels for young adults format. Cara Danvers isn't any different from any other teenager in her hometown. Problems with school, problems with boys, problems with friends. But while growing pains shake up Cara's world, a series of earth-shaking events hits her hometown, leaving her with the choice of blending in with the crowd or being different, being an outcast, being super. This reimagining of Supergirl will appeal to fans of all ages and readers new and old as the Girl of Steel flies face first into the struggles that every teenager deals with. Collect Supergirl being super, numbers one through four. The normal price is $16.99. In-stock trades price is only $6.79. You save 60%. That's a fantastic deal. And the other book I wanted to highlight is written by our guest, Paul Coverberg, Archie, The Married Life, Volume 6. Sandra, written by Paul Coverberg, drawn by Fernando Ruiz and other artists. The comic event of the century, the death of Archie Andrews. Read the story the entire world is discussing in this heart-wrenching finale to the Married Life graphic novel series. As Archie Andrews, America's most beloved character, sacrifices his life heroically while saving the life of a close friend, bringing to a close the acclaimed storyline that revealed the future of Archie and his friends. The Married Life Book 6 is the essential addition to the library of any graphic novel fan. It features what is sure to be one of the most discussed finales in the history of comics and entertainment. 336 pages, normal price, $19.99. In-stock trade price is $9.99. You save 50%. So that's another fantastic deal. So for these and all the other trade paperback needs, visit InStockTrades.com. We thank them for their support. And now let's get in the car and head to the cabin. your fall fabulous at Mount Airy Lodge or Pocono Gardens. Do all the things you've wanted to do all summer, all day, all night. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Call 966-7210 for reservations at Pocono Gardens and beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. Hello and welcome to the season premiere of Mountain Comics. I am your host, Rob Kelly. And this is the show where I look back at the comics I bought while on vacation in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania in the 1970s and 1980s. And this is not only the season premiere episode, but this is a very special show because joining me is longtime comics pro Paul Kupperberg. Hi, Paul. Hey, how you doing? I am doing doing great. I'm so happy to have you here. These two issues, uh, we're going to talk about, again, two issues of your run on the daring new adventures of Supergirl numbers one and 13 because both issues were comics that i bought while i was on vacation i could remember i still remember to this day where i got them what newsstand i bought them at uh the <laughs> very distinctive memory right. especially that um that rich buckler cover on the on the first one but so thank you so much for being here but before we even get into supergirl and all this kind of stuff i'd want to ask you did you go on regular family Copperberg vacations did you go somewhere the same place every year did you go Different place? Did you go on vacations at all as a kid? We went on some vacations when I was young. Uh, I remember we went to Lancaster uh, one year, Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, another time we went somewhere else. I don't remember. But we would tend to go to like uh, go out to Cleveland where uh, my, my aunt lived, my mother's sister and her family. So that would be a vacation 
at least as far as my parents were concerned. Uh, <laughs> us, was, you know, eight, nine hours in a car of, uh, you know, torture. So. <laughs> <laughs> did you bring like stuff to read? Did you bring comics to kind of occupy your time in an eight hour car trip? Oh, sure. Sure. There, there were comic books. There were, you know, drawing pads. There were notebooks. There was, there was a lot of diversion. That's, good. <laughs> that's an essential thing. When you were on vacation, did you go, did you like beg your parents to go take you places to look for things like that? Cause that's, that was the hallmark of my trips to the Poconos of here, which is why I'm doing the show was that like, because we didn't have a TV and we just had the radio, it was all reading. I did nothing but reading and like swimming and stuff like that. So comics are such a huge part of the vacation. Did you guys do that too? Are you an only child? Essentially, yes. I, okay. I have I have half siblings, but we did not vacation together. Okay. That's why you got to beg your parents. Uh, there were three <laughs> of them. So, uh, so we could uh, collectively and individually go fuck ourselves. Um, <laughs> Um, so <laughs> fair. okay fair enough okay so <laughs> all right oh my goodness so <laughs> as i said is this a g-rated podcast I will it's well this one is not so oh. <laughs> the rest of them have been to this point but that's well, okay i ruined this for everybody <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah paul potty mouth Coverberg. so okay uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, we're going to be ta- we're going to be talking about two issues of the Supergirl series that were released a year apart: Daring New Adventures of Supergirl number one, and then the rebranded Supergirl number thirteen. Now, I've mentioned this on previous episodes where there were a bunch of newsstands all around the cabin er- around the area of the cabin that we stayed in when I was a kid, and my parents I begged my parents to take me them, and I would buy them, but they had as newsstands did, had relatively limited selections. You could, you know, had maybe 10, 20 titles or whatever. But once in a while, we would go into, <laughs> which was the big town, Honesdale, Pennsylvania, which is not a big town, but compared to what was around the Pocono cabin, it was a big town. And those newsstands had way more selection because they were just bigger stores and they had more, they had more citizens and stuff like that. So I remember this one newsstand we walked by and it was like a barber shop slash newsstands, you know, those stores that don't exist anymore. We had to every little bit of everything. Right. And I remember looking through the window and seeing comics. And I was like, oh my God, I got to go in. And I remember seeing Daring New Adventures of Supergirl number one sitting on the stands with, again, with that amazing Rich Buckler cover of Supergirl yeah. flying. And I bought it immediately because I didn't, I mean, this was 1982. I didn't know about new things coming out. You just waited till you saw it on the news. And so I remember buying that book. Then when I got home, I didn't see Supergirl, the title that much at home for whatever reason, it just didn't appear a whole lot. I, and the vagaries of newsstand distribution, I'd see once in a blue moon, but generally not a lot. So I didn't get to keep up with it, even though I would have, cause I enjoyed it. Then I remember going back to that same exact newsstand a year later, and there was Supergirl number 13. <laughs> so I picked it up there. So, uh, and so, and we'll talk about it when we get to it, but like the opening couple of pages of number 13, where you kind of do a recap of what's happened that right. you were, you were writing to me because well, I didn't I, read those issues. And so you were cap, you were recapping a story I hadn't had a chance to read. So it was perfect. I didn't, I didn't want you to feel left out. I know how sensitive you were. 
<laughs> I mean, very much. So I really do appreciate that. So, <laughs> so before we talk about the, the first issue, I just want to get a little, a little bit, you know, behind the scenes of this. Like, how did this come about? How did you get tapped to do this in the first place? Well, I was writing Supergirl at the moment it happened. Uh, she had been appearing in uh, Superman Family. Marty Pasco had been writing it. Uh, and uh, Marty moved on. I think that's probably when DC Comics Presents came along. Uh, Marty moved over to, to write that, and uh, I took over Supergirl. It was uh, Wynn Mortimer and Vince Coletta. Wynn was doing some some lovely work on the, on the book, on the strip. Uh, but anyway, I had been writing it, and this was uh, during the period when she was in New York working as a soap opera actress. And um, One of the weirdest side gigs for a superhero. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess they were trying to like, you know, well, Clark's on TV. But um, uh, anyway, I was just writing the strip. And at some point they uh, said, you know, Superman family's going away. And uh, and we're going to spin Supergirl off into her own title. You're writing it. It was as simple <laughs> as that. You know? And, uh, you know, I sat down with, with uh, Julie Schwartz, the editor. And uh, he didn't want to continue on the path it was on. Uh, and wanted to just kind of, you know, reboot. Uh, and back then, doing a reboot was simple. You just did it. You didn't make a big deal out of it. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. So we just, you know, we we just sent her back to college. We made no reference to her age, uh, to the situation, to, you know, any of that stuff. We just said, all right, she's moving to Chicago, and she's going to college. And and that's that's what we set up. Oh, so that, that came from, from Julia Schwartz, that he wanted to, to kind of, do like a like a soft yeah. reboot kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I had uh, I had lived in Chicago uh, uh, recent to then. I moved there. I think seventy eight to eighty one. I lived there. So you know, we wanted to set it someplace new. Chicago didn't have any any superheroes, so we set it there. I used my old uh, my old address from, from my <laughs> apartment, um, and uh, my old landlady. And and uh, yeah, and John Ostrander, who was my uh, my neighbor across the street uh, before before he was in comics, he was still a uh, a playwright and an actor in the Chicago theater scene. Oh, so that's the John Ostrander is really named after the John oh, yeah. Ostrander we all yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. I when did. I lived across the street from him, I used to you know I used to dog watch for him when he uh, when, when he went on the road. <laughs> that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, that that's really, now. This is 1982. So, was there any inkling, as far as you knew, that there was a the the, the Saul kinds were thinking about a movie? Was that the idea? Was or would that have nothing to do with give, giving Supergirl her own title at all? I don't remember that being a factor. It may mm. have been, but it it, it you know I, I don't remember that because I remembered you know uh, there was an ad running in DC Books at the time. A house ad, which was the "There's No Stopping Us Now" ad, and it had it re- it highlighted four new series, and it was Supergirl, right? Uh, Orion, Blackhawk, oh, yeah. yeah. and, and Camelot Three Thousand. So you're fifty yeah. percent of that ad. Yeah, <laughs> and it turned out there was plenty stopping them. <laughs> but, uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, looking at it, the uh, Supergirl is is eighty four. The movie box office eighty three cents. Wow, that's incredible. It was nineteen eighty four, and uh, so in nineteen eighty two, it was probably in the works. It was in 
certainly in pre-production at that point. So mm. um, uh, it may be, but again, I don't, I don't know that that was necessarily a factor because I don't think anybody was still deluded enough to think that that movie sold comic books. Okay. Cause well, the reason I ask is because the Blackhawk series was started pretty much as again, at least according to Mark uh, Evanier, because Spielberg had optioned it. That was, that was the sole reason that they brought Blackhawk back was yeah, they were like, well, they, Hey, you know, yeah, yeah, they wanted to have, um, yeah, they wanted to have a book to go with the, you know, so, uh, an actual title to go with the, uh, with the property. Mm-hmm. That's why there was that Ron Goulart uh, novelization as well. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. quickie, uh, uh, done for the, for, to, to, you know, something to hand Spielberg. Right. Uh, yeah, again, I, I don't know. It, it may very well have been a factor, but it, it, you know, it didn't play into, into my part of it, uh, you know, uh, at any point at, gotcha. at that time. I mean, Supergirl's enough of a brand name that I could see the DC would be like, look, we'd want to have a book with her name on the stand. She's a super character. You know, she's a Superman spinoff character. And it's, that's a, she's a, she's a character known outside the general comic book populace, not as much as Superman, but she's certainly known. So I could see why you'd want that book out there. And Superboy had his own title. Now you famously uh, helped close out. The romance comics line at DC Comics. You, you I had a, killed romance comics. <laughs> we're not going to blame them on you, Paul, but you nevertheless were had a story in the last ever romance comic published by DC. So yeah. when you're working on this book, was there any hope or even thought about this is something that we're going to maybe try and claw back some female readership because we know that it's it's waning. Or was that not a really consideration, at least in, to, to your ears at the time? No, uh, no, that wasn't a consideration. I mean, I, I was just writing the character, you know, and, and hopefully I was writing her realistically, you know, as realistic as I could at the time. I mean, what was I? I was, you know, this is 1982, so I'm uh, I'm 27 years old and uh, already, no, I hadn't gotten married yet. I was just about to be in my first failed marriage. So um, my knowledge of women, you know, not not the best. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, so, no, I was just writing a superhero comic that happened to have a woman character. I, I you know, I, 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 I've had relatively good, you know, relative success writing female characters, uh, you know, in my career. Right. Uh, uh, Shean and in in um, uh, Ariane and, uh, uh, you know, there were strong female characters in, in Checkmate and Doom Patrol. So, you know, I've always had an affinity for them, uh, you know, for, for including those characters. So, uh, you know, I think Supergirl was just a, another, another one of those. Okay. Cause part of the reason I thought about that when I read this issue, reread it, you know, again, after many years was that for the first issue, at least there's not a lot of Supergirl action yeah. in it. It's a lot of characterization. And I thought that's kind of a, I think, you know, sort of a gutsy move that for the first issue, it's not a lot of slam bang superpower action. It's mostly character stuff. I know you had to do a lot of setting up, but yeah. nevertheless, it's like, yeah, Supergirl does this one thing and then she kind of comes in at the end, but it's really mostly all about Linda slash Kara. I thought that's it's kind of a, you know, it's a neat approach to take. Yeah. I, I, I hadn't thought of it that way really, but you know, when, when you say it, it's like, you know, I'm sitting there going, yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, everybody knows who Supergirl is. They know what she can do. 
Um, I, you know, you don't necessarily have to show her being faster than a speeding bullet in 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 this first story. And the thing that was woefully lacking for you know since since the sixties, uh, uh, since that that great Jerry Siegel and and uh, Otto Binder stuff in 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 the action comics backup uh, was characterization. You know, Cara, Linda uh, Supergirl was a very heavily character strip, heavy, you know, on characterization when, when it was, uh, you know, the, the Jim Mooney era in, in action comics. And that had kind of gone away and it had gotten kind of, you know, when they did do it, it had gotten kind of romance comic uh, uh, E. And, um, uh, you know, lots of. Uh, there was, you know, that whole run where she was just trying on new costumes, right? <laughs> like, like, you know, that's that would be writing to girls, you know, at least in that time, um, with that kind of thing, you know. Let's do paper cutout dolls. No, <laughs> right. let's let's not. Let's try to introduce a a you know a a semi realistic uh, uh, character. Okay, all right. Well, again, mission uh, yeah, accomplished. Right? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. let me let me do the I'm going to do the recap for the story for anyone who hasn't read it yet. And by the way, you'll see uh, some pages from these two issues on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. So the story is called A Very Strange and Special Girl. It's by, of course, Paul Kupperberg, Carmen Infantino and Bob Oxner. Linda Danvers is relocating to Chicago and she's going by train so she can see up close the land. She usually just flies over at super speed. She stops a conversation with a fellow passenger to dash off and change into Supergirl when her superhearing picks up an emergency at a nearby steel plant. After saving the lives of some of the workers and freezing a wave of molten lava in place, she takes off and heads back to the train. While Linda contemplates her past and future, we are introduced to a mysterious man named Pendergrast who resides at the top of a massive skyscraper. He speaks to a woman named Gale and grimly talks about eradicating the decay that he sees in the city below with Gale's help. Linda makes her way to Lakeshore University and makes friends with one of the women working in the registration office, Joan Hammond. When Linda mentions needing to find the housing office, Joan grabs her and offers to show her an apartment in her building. While Joan is dragging her along, Linda bumps into Gail coming the other way. When they touch hands, Linda feels a jolt of pain like someone attacking her mind. Gail quickly departs, and Linda tells herself to keep an eye on her. Linda moves into the new apartment, and we meet her new landlady and her neighbor, a man named John Ostrander, who flirts with Linda. Later, as Linda is taking a stroll along the waterfront, she sees a strangely hooded figure in the sky. She changes to Supergirl and approaches, but Gale, possessing amazing psionic powers, blasts Supergirl. They battle, and Gale is apprehensive about what she's doing, but Pendergast appears in her mind, commanding her to continue. Gale then suggests using Supergirl as a way to amplify her powers, which might just kill the Maid of Might. To be continued. Now, I do want to think I want to mention before we talk about the story. On the cover, it does mention the extra free 16 page comic preview of masters of the universe which we're not going to be talking about in this uh episode but i do want to mention it's written by paul kupperberg go on you are busy man (laughs) i was busy i was you know back in those days i was doing like four or five books a month (laughs) and it was and a lot of superman i was writing superman and in superman action dc comics presents I was doing these um, uh, special comics for for the European market, Superman comics for the European market. I was writing Supergirl and Superboy, and I was doing the Superman newspaper strip. Ooh, I'm a stupa. <laughs> so, okay, let me ask you about your process. When you were doing all that, were you writing 
things one at a time or going back like writing a bit here, a couple pages and then move on to the next project and then go back to, or was it, did you bifurcate things a little more heavily? Oh no, no, I would, I would, I would do, you know, a, a script, finish a script and then go on to the next one. Okay. Yeah. I, right. You know, everything was, uh, uh, fortunately it usually wasn't more than like, you know, two books in the same ship week. So, uh, okay. the schedules didn't all fall on the same day. From what I understand, a newspaper strip is a, a beast in terms of deadlines, and much more for the artist than the writer. But still, so. yeah. I mean, for me, I I um I approached it as uh, um well, well, it broke down while I was still doing the Sunday strip. At some point, that turned into a, a game and activity page that Bob Rosakis was doing. So I was just doing the the six dailies, which translated into uh uh. You know, two comic book, uh, no, three comic book pages, you know, three pages of comic book story. So, uh, um, you know, so I, I looked at it that way. And, you know, Jose Delbo, who was the artist, he, he had to deal with the crutch. But again, you know, like he was doing the, the, the equivalent of, you know, those same four pages every week, which for an artist, you know, certainly back in those days, if you couldn't do that as a minimum, you were in the wrong business. Right, right. How did you enjoy writing that? I, we, you and I have never really talked about that. How did you enjoy that process? Is it, was it, is it, was it significantly different than, than working in comics? I mean, obviously it's the same sort of format, but you're dealing with a different set of editors. You're dealing with a different set of deadlines. You're obviously the writing style is different. Was that a fun gig? Yeah, it was. I, um, I, I'd always liked newspaper strips, uh, you know, reading them growing up and, and, uh, following the, you know, finding out about the older ones uh, uh, when I got into fandom and had access to that stuff. So I, I did like it. Um, I was actually working for the same editor. You know, uh, first it was Joe Orlando was editing the strip at DC. Uh, instead of a smooth flowing telling of the story, you're, you're, you know, you're telling it in this little bite-sized three panel chunk every day. So, you know, famously you, you panel one is, kind of recapping and setting up what's already happened. Right. Uh, panel two is something new. And panel three is setting up for tomorrow. Right. Um, right. So, you know, there's storytelling is, is, is really stunted. So, okay. Uh, regarding Supergirl, uh, I mentioned it was drawn by Carmen Infantino and Bob Oxner. And I will say, I, I will admit uh, during this period uh, of Carmen Infantino's career, I, I was not, the hugest fan in the world. I didn't like what he worked on Star Wars. I just, I loved his earlier stuff, but the later stuff did not appeal to me, except when he was inked by Bob Oxner. There's something about the yeah. combination that Oxner brought. He brought this kind of wonderful cartooniness, but this kind of a clean sleekness. Not that Infantino didn't, wasn't already sleek. Of course it was, especially like the Flash stuff in the 60s. It's the epitome of the Adam Strange, but he really brought a cartooniness to it that kind of really worked. And so I thought that made for a really beautiful package. I mean, I just think they are a great combination of Oxner and inking on Infantino. Do you remember how he came about on the book? What did was he asked to do it or did they go, could they like kind of did Julie go around and say who might be good for this? No, uh, I, I have no idea. Um, You know, that was, this was presented to me. It's like, you know, we're doing Supergirl as a monthly and Carmine's going to be drawn. He had so much ability that it was hard for him to really do a bad storytelling job. Mm -hmm. There's a, a page where, where uh, uh, Linda's walking upstairs 
and it's a down shot of her coming up the stairs and there's another panel next to her next to that one that's just um you know a, a kind of a, a a square of color in the background against Linda at a doorway and it's just like boom there's the there, there's the genius you know that's just such a lovely image just such a lovely half a page uh you know that you remember yeah this is Carmen Infantino <laughs> um what Oxner did was pull it all together you know Carmen had a very sketchy style you, you know inkers look at his it would look at his pencils and go okay I gotta pick a line but which one right um right and I was at a convention with Mike DiCarlo uh over the weekend and uh we happened to talk about Carmine and he said uh, Carmine was torture but you know it's, <laughs> but it's great stuff you know that he, he they love doing it but it 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 it's hard work, but you know Oxner knew which line to ink. Mm-hmm. Plus, he drew such beautiful women that the kind of you know Carmine stuff could be a little grotesque. Um, so he he kind of he he prettied it up a lot. He he brought the glamour uh, to to the work. Absolutely, except like I, I think it's a really really beautiful yeah. uh, looking book. Did you? Did you deal with Carmine a lot? I'm trying to imagine like what it would be like to be the president of the company for a couple of years and then kind of go back to quote unquote just being an artist for the book. I mean, you know, how do you turn that off? I guess. Well, um, we didn't deal much with Carmine. I mean, you know, this was um, either writing a, a plot or a full script, which would go through the editor to the artist and, you know, and then flow back that way to me. Um, so, you know, I never, uh, I didn't deal much with him as a, when I was a writer, uh, later on when I was an editor, I, I, I dealt with him cause I, I would, you know, I, I loved Carmine's work, uh, and I loved him, crusty old bastard that he was. <laughs> and, um, I would, uh, you know, I would, I would try to f- give him work and, you know, as a result, it would be like, Hey, Carmine, why don't you come over? No, nah, I ain't going up to the office anymore. Once he got fired in 76. I think, I think never, so. He never set foot in DC again. Really? Really. He refused. Uh, everything he met, you know, everything was either done through the mail or he, you know, met people outside. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I would go to lunch with him. I'd meet him at his apartment, his, <laughs> his 1950 style bachelor pad in Turtle Bay, uh, <laughs> in the overlooking, uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn's house. Wow, <laughs> that's super cool. You could, you could watch Catherine Hepburn sunbathe on her back porch from uh, from his apartment. That uh, holy, but it, like, but it was like a you know it was decorated like a 1950s bachelor pad with that you know uh, uh, Danish modern furniture, um, great art on the walls. I mean you know fine art as well as comic book art. And hanging in his bathroom was his um, Charles Schultz Batman and Snoopy, which had uh, uh, Snoopy looking indignantly up on Batman, who was laying across the top of his doghouse. <laughs> That's all I've never seen. I've never heard or seen that. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I dealt with Carmine and, um, you know, and again, he, he was he was not an easy guy, but, you know, he he drew you know, some of the most important comics of my childhood. Mm-hmm. He drew the most important comic book of the 1960s, Flash 123. Right. You know, without Flash of Two Worlds, you know, you, you, you'd, they, they'd have run out of stories a long time ago. Right. 
Right, right, right. Wow, that's that. I'm I'm loving this image of Carmine in this cool bachelor pad across the street yeah. from Catherine Hepburn. That's just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is super cool. All right, well that's all right. Uh, <laughs> so again, it, the first issue, it just it, rereading it. I haven't read it in a long, long time, and it was so fun. It was just. Uh, again, it's such an attractive package and such a great intro for Supergirl. And I love all the stuff about, you know, that she wants to kind of set up her own identity and taking the train to be around people as opposed to just flying over it. So uh, it's, a, again, a really great uh, first issue. I just think it's a terrific, you know, terrific way to start the series. I wish the pros were a little less purple. Eleven <laughs> uh, year old me loved it, you know. I mean, again, I remember buying it. I remember bringing it back to the cabin and really, I really did. enjoying it. I get it. No, it's just, you know, it, it's hard to look back at that, uh, at old stuff, uh, without, you know, some cringing. Sure. Sure. Well, we'll we're going to jump forward a year to Supergirl. The book is now just called Supergirl and uh, number 13. And that came out on August 18th, 1983. And like I said, I remember going back to that same newsstand and hey, there's Supergirl. And I can catch up on Supergirl. Now, what was the idea behind dropping the daring new adventures of and just calling it Supergirl? Was it just branding, just just easier to just call it that? Yeah, yeah. It was just you know they they weren't so daring. Let's face it. Come on, and <laughs> uh, you know new. All right, it's a year old. How new is this? Uh, no, I don't know. It was just a yeah. It's just easier. You know, it's just uh, you know branding. Although I, I noticed on the trade paperbacks. It's uh, uh, Daring New Adventures of Supergirl Volume 2, even though it starts with the first issue of Supergirl. But Do you remember what the idea was behind the, the new costume? Yeah, that was movie-related. Okay. Um, you know, that was, uh, we're changing, oh, was that the, wait, there was another costume change. Yeah, wasn't there a costume change a little later where they bring in that stupid-ass hairband? They did, they did that later, right, yeah. Well, was that a different costume or just a hairband? I think it was a, no, that was a different suit as well from this one, but this is all right. So once again, she's changing clothes all the time. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it features the great cover by uh, Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano of, of uh, her standing on this planetoid and there's a flag behind her. And the logo is very reminiscent. I think very similar to the movie. I don't know whether it was the other way yeah. around where the, uh, the, the movie took this from. Took, took their logo from the comic, but obviously, and in the letters pages, which as of number 13, you are now answering the letters page. Right. I noticed uh, all, so many questions are about the movie and your answer is always like, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they don't tell us nothing. <laughs> so why did you, well, how did that fall to you to start answering the letter? I mean, Julie Schwartz is still the credited editor, but how did it fall to you to start answering the letters? Oh, Julie very seldom uh, did his own letter columns. Over the years, it was Nelson Bridwell, it was uh, Barbara Zakis, it was Marty Pasco, it was you know whoever. Um, and at some point, it was you know if if whoever was writing the book got to do the text page. You know, I think I think uh, Bob Rowe was doing action in Superman. You know, so I probably did. I, I guess I did Superboy as well. Was that a fun gig, or was that kind of like uh, okay? Yeah, no, that, that that was fun. You know what? Uh, letters pages are kind of free money because uh, you get your page rate for writing them. So, oh, really? Uh, oh, okay. So, you know, that's why, you know, when I was first starting, I, I was writing the text pages for, you know, House of Secrets, House of Mystery, Weird War Tales, uh, uh, 
uh, you know, whatever, you know, back in 1975, six and seven, um, you know, because it was just, it was free money. You know, you copy letters and you come up with a, a, a snarky answer and they pay you. <laughs> Actually, right. though, we often had to make up letters because there weren't enough to fill the pages. So <laughs> that's right. I've shattered your childhood illusion. Paul, <laughs> oh, come on. Now I feel even worse that all the letters I sent, I never got printed. That's how and bad Julie they were. Schwartz, that they... And Julie Schwartz used to kick puppies. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He didn't do that. Murray did. Bolt enough. Oh, <laughs> oh man. So, okay. <laughs> so let's, uh, let, let's talk about Supergirl number 13. The title of the story is Echoes of Times Gone By. It is, of course, by Paul Kupperberg, also Carmen Infantino, and Bob Oxner. So the same creative team. Superman arrives at his fortress. Also, of... by the way, yes. by the way, Ben Oda. And Tom Zuko on letters yes. and colors. I'm sorry. Yes, I don't mean to intentionally slight the letterer and, and colors. Of course, they were an important part of the part of the, the great Benoda. And the great Benoda. Yes. Uh, so, okay. Superman arrives at his fortress of solitude, only to see that a lot of it has been destroyed. He is surprised to be greeted by Supergirl, who is wearing a brand new costume. She asks, asks her cousin what he thinks of it, but when the Man of Steel doesn't deliver sufficient praise, Kara chides him. She then explains that it was a battle uh, with the supervillain Reactron and his mini clones of Supergirl that led to the fight in the fortress, where Superman's lab was able to help her defeat them. Back in Chicago, Joan is talking to her landlady, who is understandably shaken upon finding a swastika painted on her door. Joan tries to calm her down, but Mrs. Berkowitz, a Holocaust survivor, explains what she's been through and is worrying that it could be happening again, especially after news that a group of neo-Nazis are holding a rally in Grant Park. Meanwhile, Supergirl stops to visit her parents in Los Angeles. Kara sees on the news the story about the Nazi vandalism going on in Chicago at the very building she lives in and quickly flies home. She talks to her fellow tenants and is dismayed that John Ostrander is sitting in the lobby holding a vigil in case any of the Nazis return. Linda then asks Mrs. B, trying to calm her down, but it doesn't work. Once Linda sees the extent of how much this has got to the kind old lady, she becomes enraged. Later, Linda and a romantic acquaintance named Phil stop by Grant Park to see the rally. The head of it is a mis mysterious woman who talks of international conspiracies and how all of her followers are the oppressed. Linda is gobsmacked anyone can believe such idiocy. Linda and Phil begin to leave, but when a riot breaks out after one man brandishing a Jewish star confronts the woman heading, a ra heading the rally. Linda changes into Supergirl and confronts the woman who opens her robe and is revealed to be made up of light and motion. She says her name is Black Star and she blasts Supergirl to the ground before ticking off into the sky to be continued. So, Yikes. okay. Uh, okay, Paul. I did not remember this story. I, again, probably the last time I read it was three decades ago. So rereading it for this show, pretty eye-opening. Because the more things change, the more things stay the same. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. And it, it, on the, and I've said this in other, in other contexts, but like on the one hand, it makes me sad that nothing changes. But then on the other hand, I go, well, but nothing changes. Like we just, we're dealing with the same old monsters all this time. And, I mean, what was the thought here between this, taking this book into kind of a very heavy, areas uh well it was mostly inspired by the 1977 um nazi march in skokie illinois skokie is a town uh uh just north of chicago itself and uh 
Uh, I spent a lot of time in Skokie uh, when I lived in Chicago. I had friends there. I dated a girl who lived there. It's also the uh, the the home of Northwestern University, uh, and it was the birthplace of the uh, uh, Women's Temperance Union. So go figure. Hmm. But um, anyway, in 1977, uh, the uh, uh, Nazi groups got permit to march in Skokie. Uh, which had a, a very high uh, uh, percentage, uh, a number of, of Holocaust survivors living there. A Jewish, uh, Jewish town with a lot of a lot of survivors living there. So it caused an outrage, uh, but it was a First Amendment issue. You know, they have the right to speak and to march. Uh, uh, you know, and the Jews in Skokie felt that they had a right to wield baseball bats. So. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, that was the inspiration for the story. And since I had I had just used, uh, you know, Ida Berkowitz, she she was a real person. She was the, the the woman who owned the building I lived in. And she was very sweet and very nice to me because I was young, living on my own for the first time um, and often unable to make the hundred and forty five dollar a month rent on time. Uh, <laughs> and she would let me slide. She would call me Mr. Cooperberg, darling. <laughs> um, and she was a survivor. She had a she had a number on her arm. But again, lovely woman. And so, uh, you know, I just kind of put two and two together. And, you know, I said, so, Julie, can I do Nazis? And, you know, Schwartz said, yeah, let's bash them. <laughs> do you remember? Was there any feedback from from people, from readers about this this turn in the book? Um, I don't remember anything, you know, certainly nothing negative. Back then, it was actually a bad thing to be a Nazi. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was really, I was left kind of gobsmacked when we got to this material in the, in the, it was really, yeah. really powerful. Uh, did you ever show your, your landlady the, the fact that she became a combo character? Uh, no, no, this was, uh, it was published after I had moved out of Chicago and, and was never in touch with her again. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, really pretty pretty amazing stuff. You know, I just I'm I'm not used to seeing. I mean, obviously Superman fought Nazis in the 1940s, but just seeing it in a the super characters, I just generally don't think of as overlapping. I remember J M Demetrius was dealing with this sort of similar storyline over in Captain America with the idea of neo Nazis, but that's Captain America. It's kind of par for the course. But seeing Supergirl in this world yeah. is, is startling. But, you know, I come from like I was raised in in a, a part of in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, uh, which is a very Jewish, heavy Jewish neighborhood. And and I remember as a little boy, you know, seeing the, the, the old men, not not that old, actually, because it was only 15 years since the war. But seeing the, the, the men sitting at the uh, at the table in the candy store playing uh, cards uh, with their sleeves rolled up and seeing the numbers and asking, what's that? You know, so that's a reality in my life. So that that kind of part, you know, um, you know, as we've got, you know, I come from a time where for some reason it was OK to even laugh at Nazis, uh, you know, Hogan's Heroes and, and Mel Brooks and all that. But, uh, you know, that that that's very much ingrained, you know, the 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 war was recent history, even though I was born 10 years after it ended, it was still it. it in 1960, it it was only 15 years old, right. you know, 15 years ago. So that that stuck with me, and that you know, and and that whole, you know, certainly the whole Nazi, you know, it's 
it's kind of like you, you hear those stories as a kid and you start finding out what really happened. Um, and, and we did, we were lucky. My family on both sides seemed to have gotten out of, out of Europe by, you know, 1910. Uh, mm-hmm. we didn't go to the Nazis. We just like got the hell out, you know, from the czar. Right, uh, right. But, um, you know, so I, I, you know, I, 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 yeah, it, it just, it was, uh, I, I guess somehow the, the, the opportunity presented and I, and I went for it. Yeah. Cause it's not the type of story I was writing at that time. Yeah. Yeah. The, the in-between issues, again, I, re- I only read it spottily because I didn't, it didn't show up at my newsstand all regularly. We're very, yeah. you know, the classic Superman era, super silver age story. You got react. I mean, you, that was something else I wanted to ask you about, not to get off this topic, but like you, a lot of these, this first dozen issues, you're introducing a lot of new villains to Supergirl. Is that, was that, you know, sort of a conscious thing of like, I don't want to just reuse what we've got. I want to give Supergirl her own kind of rogues gallery sort of thing. Yeah. Well, she needed it. I mean, you know, uh, the Superman never had a great rogue gallery. I mean, he had a few good, few good characters, but you know, he also had Terror Man. So <laughs> you had to balance that. Right. Um, I, I did a lot of, I, I used Terror Man a lot back then. I, I, I don't know. I think Schwartz liked them and would always go do a Terror Man story. It's like, <laughs> really? Okay. We're fans but, of Terror um, Man here on the network. Wish. I could remember what my reaction was at 12 when I read this. Even at 12, I know Nazis bad, uh, you know, and I know that at 51, Nazis bad. But, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, Indiana Jones, punch Nazis and kill them. Absolutely. But I just I wish I could remember what I what my reaction was, because it must have really thrown me for a loop at at that age to read this in a Supergirl comic. It was, again, probably not anything I would have expected. Yeah. Although, you know. Again, Nazis were a fairly common villain in those days. Sure. Although it, it, I guess it tended to be actual, you know, old Nazis who, who, who had been, you know, actual Nazi Nazis, uh, as opposed to these wannabes, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, but this was kind of different, I guess. You know, this was this was not somebody who had been, you know, under Hitler. This was a young person going. No, there's something there, you know. Yeah. Uh, except it was, it was great. It was great reading. I mean, it, uh, there were times I just, went, wow, this feels like you could have written this, unfortunately, in 2023. Yeah. But on, but on the other hand, it holds up, you know, it holds up really well, Paul. Like it, it was like, this is just, if, if I, if you had bought this, if this was on a comic stand now, you'd be like, yeah, this seems plausible. Well, you know, I, I, looking back through, uh, through my run on Checkmate, uh, which is a lot of, you know, themes of terrorism and all that stuff. It's, it's astonishing to me how much, um, uh, is still going on. You know, it, it was, uh, uh, like you say, I, I think some of these things are just, you know, are, are just bound to be timeless, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, my, my, the first story arc is about domestic terrorism. About you know uh, uh, racist you know uh, uh, yep yeah, racist domestic terrorists. So welcome to the uh, welcome to the twenty first century. <laughs> they were both terrific reads, and you you wrote every single issue of Supergirl. All tw- I think it ran for twenty three issues. You yeah. ran every you wrote every single one. Carmine and Bob Oxner drew every single one. No, That's- no, no, no. Later ones were um, there were issues done by Eduardo Barreto. Oh, were they? Okay. He did, yeah. he did the interiors as well. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, okay. I didn't know that. Okay. But Carmine did the bulk of them. Yeah. Oh, I said, okay. Yeah, I said, so, you know, it's an amazingly cohesive run. It is, I don't know why I'm surprised anymore because there's so many examples of it not happening, but movies really, as you said, movies do not help sell the comic. You would, it, it seems counterintuitive that a Supergirl movie, even an unsuccessful one, wouldn't help move some issues of the comic, but it doesn't seem to be the case. No, I, you know, when, when I, when the, uh, Stallone Judge Dredd movie came out, mm-hmm. DC got the license to do, uh, new Dread stories here in, 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 in the States. And I was editing the two titles. And so I was part of the whole marketing team, uh, you know, not team, but, you know, group. Whenever there were meetings about like with licensees, I was brought in as editor of the comics. And, um, the guy who was marketing, Judge Dredd, not just the movie, but the character was the same guy who took the, uh, uh, the Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles and, you know, turned them into a billion dollars. Wow. And this guy was sitting there going, Judge Dredd is going to be the next big thing. <laughs> this movie is going to make Dredd the next big thing. And I said to him, Mark, I will bet you all the money in my bank account versus all the money in your bank account <laughs> that that these comics are canceled within six months of the movie. <laughs> anyway, now you don't know what you're talking about. He didn't take the bet, but I didn't know what I was talking about. The move, the, the comics were canceled, and Judge Dredd did not become the next big thing. No, so. it did not. How close were you to being right about that? Did it last? Did they last six? Were you over under? Oh, I don't remember the exact uh, uh, the exact timing. I, I don't think it lasted six. I think <laughs> I think you know it was probably within two or three months of the of the movie. Uh, you know, tanking it, uh, the comics were gone. Right. <laughs> That's a shame. You could have made some money. Uh, <laughs> so, well, again, they were they were terrific reads, and it was so fun to dig them out again after so long. And as I talk about every episode on every episode of the show. Those books that I bought were more than just reef entertainment because because I, there was not much else to do up there. I read every comic over and over and over again, and they became I, – I started to learn the every word of them, and it became like song lyrics. I just got so familiar with them because I just read them over and over and it had so many nice memories of it. And so it was so cool to be able to kind of – it was frustrating not to be able to find Supergirl at home much – but then it was cool to be able to say, "Oh, here I can pick up, I can pick up the book again." And like I mentioned, you know, that opening yeah. crawl that you wrote, where you explain what happened in issues nine through twelve, I was like, "Oh, okay, I'm caught up now." There were Reactron and these little Supergirl clones. Okay, cool, I'm ready to go. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Perfect. So, okay, well, again, Paul, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, you've always been so kind to me over the years doing various interviews with me and things like that. And so uh, you continue on with this. It's just so much fun to talk to you. You always have a million projects going in any given point. So why don't you tell people kind of some of the things that you're working on? Well, um, I recently published uh, a book of, of interviews called direct conversations talks with fellow DC comics, bronze age creators uh, where I, I, uh, I, I just talked about, uh, what it was like breaking into the business in the early and mid seventies and, uh, uh, more specifically what it was like being at DC comics at the time and all the people that worked there and passed their, through there. And for that, I talked to Howard Chaikin and Jack Harris, uh, Tony Isabella, Paul Levitt, Steve Mitchell, Barbara Zakis, Joe Staten, Anthony Tallon, 
uh, Bob Toomey and Michael Uslin. And um, uh, and I am now working on my next book of interviews, um, which I've just literally started days ago, uh, which is going to be cast a lot wider range, a lot wider net than uh, than, than the mid-70s. I'm going to talk to creators spanning a whole bunch of time uh, on a different topic. But um, but that that's one of my main focuses now. And another one might be a, a, actually a graphic novel about Nazis, uh, which uh, I've been uh, kind of toying with and talking to 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 a publisher about. So uh, we'll see if that happens. Right. Outstanding. Well, again, you heard him, everybody. Go check out that book. You can get it. Uh, Amazon and any other, uh, you can get it. I'm sure you get it off. Can you get it off your website? Yes. Uh, uh, uh You can go to my store and get that or any of my books with a click. All right. Sounds good, everybody. Well, again, Paul, thank you for doing this. I really do appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you very much. And of course, everybody, uh, stay tuned. I'm going to run some podcast promos. And when I come back, I'm going to do listener feedback from the previous season of Mountain Comics. All right. Don't talk about me when I'm gone. Sean, do you want to go over the checklist to make sure we are ready for the next phase of the Batman family reunion? Sure thing, Paul. Robin and Batgirl in team-up action? Check. Fried chicken? Check. Mambat fighting a rare jaguar? Check. Deviled eggs? Check. Potato salad? Check. Without the raisins? Of course. The Huntress fighting Catwoman and Poison Ivy? Check. Lemonade? Check. Alfred and Commissioner Gordon keeping a secret from Ruth Wayne? Check and check. Reprints for all new stories. New stories and reprints until issue 10, and then nothing but brand new stories from there on out. Giant size issues? A mere giant size until issue 16, and then dollar comics from issues 17 to 20 through the end of the run in Detective. Guest list? Absolutely. We are having a number of bat relatives visit the reunion, so listen in for your favorite bat cousin. All right, great. Then we're all ready for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast, where we talk about Batman Family, the great comic book from the 70s and 80s. We'll discuss not only the stories, but also the text pages and ads, and we'll also find out what the Batman family was doing on the newsstands that month. And since this is a reunion, we're inviting all of you, the Bat kinfolk, to listen in and to be part of the show. Look for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Do you remember your first comic book? Do you remember the first time you held a cover in your hand and you flipped the pages, you read the adventures of these amazing heroes, and you really fell in love with the medium? The first time you bonded a character to a team, to a company, and you knew, yep, I'm in this for life? Well, so do we. So join us on the never-ending reading pile from the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, where we proudly don our nostalgia goggles, we dive into our favorite comics, our favorite eras, our favorite characters, our favorite creators, and we just bask in the glory that is being a comic book collector. Come join us and help us chip away at the never-ending reading pile.
And it's time for listener feedback. And these are the comments we got on the entire last season of Mountain Comics over on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. So, of course, to keep this segment sort of at imaginable length, I'm going to be reading uh, every comment. I'm going to uh, pick out a couple from each episode. But I wanted to make sure that we cover it because uh, we do feedback at the beginning of every new season. And I want to make sure that uh, the comments that do come in over the course of all these episodes uh, get a little attention because I really do appreciate it. So, uh, episode number 34, the first one of the season, where we covered Dazzler number eight with my guest Paul Kien, of course, a fellow member here of the network. We got comments from Edo Boznar, Siskoid, Captain Entropy, Martin Gray, Paul Kien himself, Damon Drouet Whiter, Chris Franklin, Lizanne Oswald, Brett Young, Dr. Ange, Matt Sorois, who says, Yay, it's officially summer and Mountain Comics is back. I love this show, particularly when you can look back on an old book with a new insight. I only had Dazzler number one, and that was because Spider-Man was on the cover. That book, along with Power Pack number six, was just one of those times when the choice of comics in the magazine section was slim indeed. I never had any interest in Power Pack, but Spider-Man was prominent on that cover, so I bought it. It's another thing we've lost over the years now that the way we buy comics has changed so much. The mystery of what we were going to find when we approached that rack. Was there going to be a bunch of Spider-Man books? Did we already have the Batman comic? Wow, who's this Moon Knight guy? He looks weird. Bet he won't be around long. Okay, I blatted on long enough. Great show, Robin Paul. Thanks for the trip back to 1981. I'm going to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater while I'm here. Funny you say that, Matt, because uh, they are showing Raiders of the Lost Ark in theaters. Actually, if you're listening to the day it comes out, today it's it's playing in uh, June 4th and June 7th. I have tickets to the June seventh uh showing so that's funny you mentioned that because yeah we can uh, it is like going back to 1981 we can go see Raiders of the little star uh lucine desar says uh, this early morning i looked at my phone with groggy eyes and spotted this episode posting i snapped up awake and listened to it this morning i started reading reading dazzler several years ago because i was at the new york comic-con and i spotted an issue for sale in the dollar bin so as a lark i got a few issues for a friend of mine as a joke i never got around to giving the issues to him as i started reading it i was hooked why it's set in the 1970s, featured disco, roller skates, and the superhero has the weakest powers I've ever seen. So then I collected all the issues and even mentioned get Dazzler's first appearance in Uncanny X-Men number 130. The reason Marvel released Dazzler based off my discussion with Danny Fingeroth at Big AppleCon, it was a cash grab in the disco market. Fingeroth said that every fad Marvel had started too late. Those first appearance of Dazzler was 1980. At that point, disco was nearly dead already. This exact disco died was on July 12, 1979, with the infamous Disco Demolition Night at Chicago's Comiskey Park. The writing was great from issues 1 through 11 with Finger Off, and then issues got really wonky. I still like them all. The Marvel Masterworks releases are amazing. Volumes 1 to 3 have come out recently. If you like Dazzler or Roller Skating Disco, check out the movie Skate Town USA 1979 featuring Scott Baio, Patrick Swayze, Flip Wilson, Maureen McCormick, and Kathleen Kelly Lang. That's a cast. Great episode, and I mean that despite <laughs> that you both are from Jersey and can't pump your own gas. <laughs> I, okay. Uh, <laughs> Let's move on to episode uh, 35, Marvel 2 and 1, annual number 6 with my guest, Dallin Baumgarten. Got comments from John Dredge, Captain Entropy, Matt Sorois, Chuck Coletta, Al Gerding, Chris Franklin, Siskoy, David Gutierrez, Paul Ken, Michael Wagner, Dr. Ange, and Brian Linton, who says, This sounds like a fun story, but I have to admit I have some difficulties with American Eagles depiction here. Creating an indigenous American superhero is great. I'm all for increasing cultural diversity in comics. Unfortunately, dressing him in the colors of the flag of the people who drove his own people from their lands, naming him after the national symbol of those same people who murdered and oppressed his own, seems problematic to me. Does anyone know if these sorts of issues were ever addressed in any of the American Eagles' later appearances? Full disclosure, I'm writing this from the perspective of a middle-aged male of Western European descent with little knowledge of indigenous American cultures. 
Thanks again for another excellent episode. It was great to hear from Dallin again. Uh, agreed to that, Brian. And yeah, I don't know. I know that American Eagle did make, did make later appearances. Uh, I've never read any of them, so I don't know if any of those things were addressed. Hope so. Ado Boznar says, hmm, I have to say that two separate lines of thought emerge as I was listening to this show. First echoes pretty much of what Brian said above about the troubling aspects of American Eagle as a character. I thought he was cool when I was a kid, but later it occurred to me just how problematic he is. I would add that using the war bonnet as a component of his costume is also a questionable choice. However, my second line of thought is more positive because this issue really does jog some pleasant summertime memories. This is a case in which I specifically remember where I purchased it, in a cigar cigar and tobacco shop in downtown Portland, Oregon, that also carried a huge selection of newspapers, magazines, and yes, comics. As noted, the cover is so eye-catching, so it made uh, the choice to buy it easy. There were, by the way, a lot of big books I remember getting that month. Not only annuals, like Spectacular Spider-Man number one and my favorite, X-Men annual number five, but also X-Men number 150 and Defenders number 100. On the topic of Richie Rich, yes, something that has always fascinated me ever since I discovered Mike's Amazing World and its newsstand page is the immense number of Richie Rich titles that were mass-produced during most of the 1970s and into the 80s. There was never less than 10 of them in any given month. And as Dallin noted, their number sometimes surpassed 20. By the way, it would appear that Dallin is exactly one month younger than I am. So I have to say I'm a bit surprised to hear that he was already too old to be watching the Spider-Woman cartoon. I watched it regularly, and I wouldn't stop watching Saturday morning cartoons until about a year or two later. In conclusion, though, I must second Dallin's assertion that you're doing God's work, Rob. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ada. That's a ridiculous assertion that Dallin made, but I do appreciate you seconding it. Uh, regarding the comments episode 36, Marvel's Greatest Comics number 93 with my guest Danny Fingerov. We just talked about him. Got comments from Matt Sorois, Edo Boznar, Paul Ken, Siskoid, and Bucky749, Down Bumgarten, and fellow network all-star Chris Franklin, who says, Great discussion. My mind was blown about Mr. Fingerov's revelation on why so many reprint comics were in circulation back in the Bronze Age. I bought a lot of Marvel Tales, Marvel Superheroes, and a handful of this title, Marvel's Greatest Comics. And for what it's worth, my son loves the Clone Saga and everything to do with it. <laughs> Captain Entropy says, wonderful episode, Rob. It's great to hear from someone I associate with so many great stories. Even better to hear that he's still active in comics and prose. Please take Mr. Fingeroth up on the return, offer to return. Also, I love the reprints, too. Yeah, I loved all that stuff, Captain. And I will mention this again, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out, uh, I am just wrapping up my trip to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. When you're hearing this, this event will be in the past. But of course, as I'm talking right now, it's still in the future. Let's just stick with where I am right now. Uh, I will be attending the World of Bob Dylan uh, events at the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I will be part of a panel on podcasting about uh, Bob Dylan. Also there and also giving a talk will be Danny Fingeroth. Danny and I have never met. But we are hoping to get together while we are in Tulsa. I would love to shake his hand and just get a picture with him and stuff. So hopefully by the time you're hearing this, Danny and I have, in fact, had a chance to do that. And we will see. Again, hopefully it happens. But, uh, yes, it was so great to have Danny on the show. It was just a real, real thrill. And I'm glad to – I'm very appreciative that uh, we've continued our acquaintance. And, uh, again, he's made an appearance on Pod Dylan as well. So it's great to call him a friend. Episode 37 is The Amazing Spider-Man, number 234, with my guest Laurel Phillips. We got comments from Matt Royce, Chris Franklin, Edo Boznar, Ange, Lucian Desar, Captain Entropy, James Hudson, Martin Gray, Paul Kian, and Eric, who says, I had read some of Mark Burby's other work, so I checked the Grand Comic Book database and did some Googling before writing this response and learned even more. From what I could find, uh, she transitioned at some point and is now known as Dana Marie Andra. 
did not know that. She had some other comic credits under her former name, but they're so far outside the Marvel DC wheelhouse that it's even more surprising that she'd do this collector's guide for Marvel. In the 1970s, she wrote several stories for the underground horror comic Dr. Wortham's Comics and Stories, including stories drawn by Gene Day and Mark Hempel early in their careers. In 1991, Caliber Comics collected those stories into a one-shot anthology called Horror Show, which is where I read them. Later on, she was the editor of Street Music, a slice-of-life anthology title from Fantagraphics, also writing some but not all the stories in each issue, and about as far as removed as you could get from Marvel. From what I could gather, it seems that she also did a fair amount of comics journalism, interviews, articles, which would probably explain why she wrote this collector's guide. Thank you so much for that info, Eric. I didn't know any of that. That's fantastic. I would love to talk to her. It's, you know, it's one thing she wrote 40 years ago, but man, I, I love that. As we talked about in the episode, I love that guide so much. So I would love to talk to her about it if I ever had a chance. Uh, we got a comment from Mike Dinas. This is one of fun episode, everyone. Laurel, such a great guest. Absolutely. And it was interesting to hear her problems with motion sickness. I definitely get sick reading in a car, but nothing compared to what Laurel has. So I feel for you, Laurel. Wow, this really hit me in the feels, as I'm pretty sure this might have been one of the first comics I ever read or more likely remember reading. There are two villains from my youth that I thought were way bigger than they actually were, Will the Wisp and the Atomic Skull. Wisp had such a striking, simple costume that it really stuck in my head and wouldn't let go. I was confused when he didn't show up again with other villains like Hobgoblin. Thanks for bringing back some great memories. Keep up the great work. Uh, Thank you, Mike. I haven't seen it yet. I guess because it hasn't come out yet. Nobody's seen it. But the um, Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse movie, you know, that that movie is in the first one featured like the Prowler and some other obscure uh, Spider-Man villains. I mean, if they keep making those movies and I think I thought I'd read there was already a third one planned, like it wouldn't the odds that Will the Wisp was going to show up is pretty remote, but it's not impossible because those movies dig pretty deep into the rogues gallery. So you never know. Uh, episode 38, Sergeant Rock number 406 with Captain Entropy. Got comments from Matt Royce, Captain Entropy, Ado Boznar, Liz Ann Oswald, Siskoy, Chris Franklin, Dr. Ange, Sean Ross, who says another great episode. I vaguely remember the ad for these issues of Sergeant Rock, but Rock and Easy Company never made their way to the spinner racks where I lived. I guess, like Joe Kubert intended, Rock didn't like to mingle with the superheroes. I loved hearing Captain E's stories of his time in the service. I appreciate his service and his willingness to share his unique experience on war comics. He's always a joy to hear on the FW network. Very true. I loved your Joe Kubert critique story, Rob. Nothing like a living legend just dashing off a great cover to make you shrink in your shoes. I wonder how Joe Kubert and John Romita Sr. feel knowing their kids have continued their legacies. I have to imagine they feel as much or more pride in the accomplishments of the kids as their own. I'm sure that's true, Sean. Lucien Desar says, super episode. I love Sergeant Rock and the weird war tales as a kid because my brother gave me all his comics. Seeing Nazis blow up and get shot at made a lasting impression on me. My dad was German and was five years old during the war, so we had interesting conversations to say the least. In any event, I wasn't taught about the Tuskegee Airmen in school either, and I wish it's I wish I had it's such an iconic story. There could have been a comic book series just about them. Great work. Thank you, Lucian. Episode 39, Cracked, number 199, with my guest Dan Budnick. Got comments from Matt Royce, Ido Boznar, Travis Morgan. Wow, the warlord. Chris Franklin, Ange, Captain Entropy, Kerowin, and Sean Emmons, who's a super fun episode. Can't wait for you to bring Dan back for a Mount Comics MASHcast crossover episode. Yes, uh, obviously, uh, MASH was parodied quite a bit on Cracked. So, uh, you know, maybe we'll get to that at some point. That would be fun. Dan has been on uh, mash cast a couple times but we haven't ever talked about mash comic related stuff but that's maybe something we'll do at some point and i also got a comment from siskoid who says that man magazine was a big part of my youth and so cracked was too 
filling in the uh, cracks on Madless Months. Not that I understood that. Whether or not, uh, whether or not either of these magazines would actually be funny to my adult self decades on, I often credit them for teaching me the building blocks of a joke and helped fine tune my own humor. Absolutely, says Quaid. So, of course, that episode, the cracked episode, was originally supposed to be the season finale of comics, and it kind of was until I went on my honeymoon about a month later where uh, my wife and I went out to California and I had a sort of newsstand-related adventure. Uh, My pal Bradley Null commented that he had visited that newsstand and bought comics there, and I thought that was such an interesting story that I brought Mount Comics back for a special one-off episode in October, and that's where we talked about Jelly Annual Number 1, and that got comments from John Dredge, Siskoid, Edo Boznar, Dr. Ange, Chris Franklin, Martin Gray, Rob McCarthy, Matt Sorois, Captain Entropy, and Damon Jory Whiter, who says, I think I've worked out how to appear on an episode of Mountain Comics. All I've got to do is convince Kelly to take Rob for Manic Holiday in Great Yarmouth, and I'll have it in. Great episode as ever. You know, maybe. <laughs> uh, don't, don't please reach out to my wife. Uh, and then finally, we got a comment from Brett Young, who says, hey, a bonus Mount Comics. Great to see. This JLA annual brings me back as well. This issue is still in my collection. Dr. Destiny always had a unique look. When a villain is rocking buccaneer boots with a hooded cape and ties it together with a nice ruby brooch, you know he means business. Of course, fainting uh, when the JLA shows up doesn't help his rep. Can't support a scary skull for a face if you're going to faint, Doc. Turn in your evil doctor's license. Quite the deep dive into general stores. You can wear your new $75 sweatshirt while you play some Flash Gordon pinball. Unfortunately, you're right about the lack of comics in any non-comic stores. I wish they'd at least go back to the random three packs at drugstores, Targets, and places like that. Well, it's time to throw the sheets over the furniture, lock up, and ride my Huffy down the hill. I'll look forward to more Mountain Comics next year. Well, thank you, Brett, and I hope you enjoyed this episode, the first one of the new season of Mountain Comics. And so thank you all for listening. A big, big thanks to... Paul Kupperberg for being my uh, big, uh, big pro celebrity comics guest. I like to have one pro guest on Mount Comics per season. That to me is my own little personal bar that I like to set. And we got it out of the way in the first episode of the season. One other thing I will mention about Paul. Now, despite the fact he said at the end of his segment that uh, he doesn't want me to talk about him when he's not there. And I agreed to that. I'm going to do it anyway, because I don't think he's listening to this part. Back when I started the Aquaman Shrine blog, some of you listening to this remember that blog that I ran for 11 years talking about Aquaman. It started in 2006, and I was just a a normal comic nerd writing about Aquaman, as you do. And then it took me, I don't know, five, six months where I started actually doing issue reviews. And I did an issue review of Aquaman number 63, which was during that time of that book, the original Aquaman book, was written by Paul Kupperberg. He He wrote the last bunch of issues. So I wrote that review, and not too long a time later, I got a comment on the blog from a Max Kupperberg who said, hey, that's my dad who wrote the comic that you're reviewing. And uh, luckily, I said lots of nice things about it. I mean, I wasn't lying. I love that comic. It's one of my Aquaman number 63. It's one of my favorite Aquaman comics of all time. But Max read it, and I don't know how he ever found it, maybe – Uh, Who knows? He found it. And he asked me, um, if you wanted to, I could hook you up with my dad, which was amazing. And Max did. And I went and interviewed Paul for my Aquaman Shrine blog. And it was so much fun. Paul was so awesome. And that really started me on the road that I am on now because the blog 
led to me being friends with Shag, which led to the Fire and Water podcast, which led to the Fire and Water podcast network, which led to the show you're listening to right now. And we'll never know what might have happened if it didn't work out this way. But Paul was the first celeb comics pro interview I ever did. I was terrified because I look up to these people. I grew up reading these books and getting to talk to someone who actually worked on the thing that I read as a kid was so transformative and nerve wracking. Paul could not have been nicer. You heard him on the show. He's a warm, funny, self-deprecating guy. And it was a great interview. And I got to call him a friend at that point. And we've been friends ever since. And I honestly don't, you know, I think about the interviews I've done since people I have been lucky enough to talk to uh, from people from all the various nerdy things that I'm interested in, whether it's MASH, you know, I've talked to cast members from MASH or whether it's been, we, you know, Chris and I talked to Richard Donner, uh, Alex Ross, J.M. Demetrius, Alan Brenner. I mean, I have been very, very, and we just mentioned earlier, Danny Fingeroth. I've been so lucky to be able to talk to a lot of these people. And I honestly don't know if I would have kept trying to do that, if that first interview with Paul had not gone well, if for some reason he didn't like me or whatever. I mean, again, Paul's a super nice guy. It was always going to go well, but I didn't know that at the time. And I took a risk and I'm glad I did. And after that, I got a little more comfortable about reaching out to pros and, and trying to interview them and being respectful of their time and respectful of their work. Of course, I always am. But Paul was really the first one. Paul was patient zero in this case. So Without Paul, I don't know if I would have had the guts to go and pursue the interviews that I've had and therefore be able to do it on the blog and then on these podcasts. So I owe Paul a lot. I really do. Aside from just writing a bunch of great comics that I loved, he also introduced me to a world that I never thought I ever would have been part of. And I'm so fortunate. So big, big thanks to Paul. He has just always been so nice to me and he continues that here with this uh talking to me about comics that he wrote 40 years ago. So again, big thanks to Paul Kupperberg. So, um, okay. I've gone on long enough. That's it for mountain comics. This is the season premiere. I hope you enjoy the other episodes that we have planned. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. As I mentioned last season, mountain comics has its own feed. Now, if you would like to leave a Apple podcast review, that would be awesome. The show doesn't have that many reviews. They're all very positive, but there aren't that many. So if you want to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate it. Uh, the show has its own Twitter feed, because of course it does. It's a FWP MountainCom. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash FWPodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Gord Tolton and David Gutierrez for their support of the Fine Water Podcast Network. I really do appreciate it. So I did mention at the end of the segment, but I'm going to, I'm going to grab Paul back, and we're going to crack open some Yoohoo's. And watch the uh, sun going down and talk about the Supergirl and stuff like that. So uh, be here next month for another episode of Mountain Comics. See you then. Bye. Have a summer of fun in the Poconos. At your host with the most in the Poconos. kind of summer fun at Mount Airy Lodge or Pocono Gardens. Beautiful rooms, fabulous food, headline entertainment, winter, spring, summer, fall. Call 966-7210 for reservations at Pocono Gardens and Beautiful Mount Airy Lodge.